This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast from May 27th, 2019. There's been a big cultural shift since Me Too began, which is polarizing to say the least. In this show, we talk to someone with an alternative view on the movement. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. On the line now, I have Grayson Kay. He's a freelance writer. His work has been published in the Washington Times, Reason.com, The National Interest, Town Hall and others. He's also an MA candidate at Georgetown University. And Grayson, you've been writing a few different articles about the Me Too movement. Tell me overall, what's your take? Uh, well, my take is profoundly mixed. It's a uh, it's one of those situations where uh, pretty much everyone gets angry at me for something I've said about the Me Too movement, which a lot of the times that's how you know that you're saying something original and, and possibly insightful, at least I hope so. Uh, so my take is that a lot of aspects of it are positive. Mm-hmm. I think that it's virtually impossible to deny that in a lot of these settings, there are men who exploit women and treat them badly and that those men deserve to be exposed and punished. Uh, so in that sense, I'm very, I'm very happy about the movement. On the other hand, there are, uh, there are easy critiques to be made. So, for example, especially early in the movement, there was an issue with kind of distinguishing between different gradations of sexual misconduct. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you had someone like Al Franken who was accused of groping versus someone like Harvey Weinstein who was accused of uh, full-on rape. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a piece very early in the movement arguing that uh, I think Matt Damon made some comments about this, too, that he got heat for, that there needs to be a differentiation between these people. We need to decide which ones are completely uh, out of public life forever and which ones can you know, do penance and return. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few other things I noticed. I wrote one piece for, uh, for the American conservative uh, about Me Too and tribalism, where uh, so most listeners, probably even those outside the U.S., will remember the uh, Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings for the United States Supreme Court, where mm-hmm. his accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, uh, accused him of attempted rape uh, when he was in high school. And it was, you know, a large, you know, a media circus. And it was a very, you know, bo- both sets of testimony were very difficult to watch. But at the same time that this was going on, so with the the Kavanaugh-Ford thing, about 50% of Democrats said they believed Ford's allegations and only about 5% of Republicans did. Mm. Uh, so I was really annoyed at that, that so many people were judging it on a partisan basis uh, rather than weighing the accusations objectively. And then I did some digging and there was actually a race for Minnesota state attorney general going on at the same time where the Democratic candidate was named Keith Ellison. Mm-hmm. And he'd been accused of uh, he'd been accused of domestic abuse by his former girlfriend, and the numbers were exactly switched. So so he was a Democrat running for office. Mm-hmm. He had been accused, as you say, of domestic abuse. And 
Republicans believed it and Democrats didn't. Exactly. Yeah. Democrats, um, about 5% of Democrats believed it and about half of Republicans did. So you have almost the exact same numbers, but flipped along partisan lines. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, what a loss. At the beginning of the movement, uh, one of the most exciting things to me was that it appeared genuinely nonpartisan. You had a Republican congressman like Trent Franks, who was forced to resign, and then a Democratic senator mm-hmm. um, like Al Franken. So I was thinking, this is great. You know, it's it's a way of saying that this is a problem that sort of goes beyond the political spectrum. But unfortunately, uh, as you know, the movement went on, it was kind of sucked into the partisan machine. Oh, okay. There's, there's two different issues there. One is the proportionality of the response to different types of behavior. And I guess you could say there's a spectrum of behavior there. And the other issue is, aside from the proportionality, there's the, as you say, the partisan nature of how the, the responses continued. And one thing that really struck me there was that it seemed that some people were getting blowback for behavior that was orders of magnitude less serious than others. And one that, that really, I thought, probably got less publicity than it deserved, even though it got a hunk of publicity, was Matt Lauer. And apparently Matt Lauer had had a device installed in his desk, a button whereby he could remotely lock his office door so that anybody, presumably uh, a, a woman who was in there could then be locked in. That betrays an incredible degree of premeditation. And mm-hmm. I, I think in any jurisdiction, that, that would count as false imprisonment, as effectively kidnapping. Mm-hmm. That's incredibly serious. And comparing that to Al Franken, who it seems like had a silly drunken prank that wasn't mm-hmm. terribly damaging to anyone. Not that I'm defending it, but it, those two things sure. are enormously different, aren't they? What I always go to, one of my sort of touchstones when I talk and think about this issue is the character of Michael Scott from the, the TV show, The Office, the, the American mm-hmm. version. I'm sorry to all, my, to all your British listeners. Oh, uh, oh no. I oh, I, I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of the American version. Anyway, go on. Mm-hmm. But Michael Scott, you know, is, kind of by no measurement, an admirable person. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you go back and watch that show in the sort of Me Too era, one thing that strikes you initially is that he is a sort of prime candidate to be Me too He makes, you know, very awkward sexual remarks to the women in the office. Uh, mm-hmm. In one episode, he sort of misreads some signals and attempts to kiss Pam when she doesn't want him to mm-hmm. um, and is stopped. But he's not a malevolent guy. There's nothing sort of overtly sinister like what matt lauer did with the button in his desk Mm -hmm. Uh, michael scott's just a very socially awkward person who's bad at reading cues and just doesn't have a lot of Mm self-awareness so i think to um i think to publicly shame someone like that and completely ruin their life is again it's an issue of proportionality i think it's important to distinguish between people who may have done something stupid or foolish that made a woman uncomfortable in a setting like that and someone who was exhibiting genuinely predatory behavior. I, I don't want to try to turn tables, but that type of social awkwardness that you use the example of of Michael in, in the office, in the American office, mm-hmm. I, I've come across 
people, including women, who are that socially awkward, probably less often than men. Actually, I don't know mm-hmm. what that says about women and men. But I've on occasion had people behave inappropriately, perhaps sometimes with a bit too much alcohol taken. I've had people mm-hmm. behave inappropriately to me. But surely the dividing line there is where somebody either is or has good reason to think they are in physical danger. And there are some cases, um, for example, with Matt Lauer, where nobody could question that somebody would rightly feel in physical danger there if they were being locked into a room with him. Is that the case, for example, with Al Franken? So so in situations like that, where no one's in physical danger, I'm I wouldn't quite be comfortable just sort of writing those off. So sort of Michael Scott style harassment, mm-hmm. I do still think of as a genuine problem, even if, you know, the person being harassed is not in danger. There is still a sense in which comments like that can create, you know, what's known as a hostile work environment in which sure. someone wouldn't yeah. feel comfortable. Um, so and you see this on the, the show, The Office, Michael almost never gets away with the things he says. Someone will almost always say, Michael, that's inappropriate, or, mm-hmm. or Michael, you need to stop that, or you can't say that, uh, which I think is, uh, you know, to sort of take someone like that aside and let them know that what they're saying is making people uncomfortable is is probably the correct approach to that. I don't, I certainly don't believe in just letting things like that stand. Uh, but at the same time, there needs to exactly, as we've been saying, be, be proportionality, uh, to, you know, publicly shame someone like that and, and ruin their career probably isn't the answer. Do do you think that in the case of Al Franken, he should not have resigned? That's a tough one. I, I need to kind of review all the details of it. It's, it's obviously been a while. Um, potentially, I don't know. I, I could see I could see someone making a case for him not resigning. I don't remember. Like I said, I don't remember all the details. I only remember the one where he uh, took the the staged photo with the female soldier, mm-hmm. uh, which was which was certainly you know a bit creepy and uncomfortable. You'd expect it really uh, from a fifteen year old, wouldn't you? Yeah. So he's he's certainly not a Harvey Weinstein, um, but you know I can certainly see there being. Uh, repercussions for that. I don't know if I can just categorically say whether he should have resigned or not. I uh, don't feel like I recall the story as clearly as I as I okay. should. Okay, that, that, that's but. fine. <laughs> Let's move on then, because in another one of your articles, and I'll link to these in the show notes, in another one of your articles, you said essentially that the issue had been politicized and made tribal. And you said, uh, Me Too falls to tribalism. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I was just annoyed by the implication that it's only, you know, it's only Republicans or it's only Democrats who commit uh, sexual misconduct. I remember during the uh, Kavanaugh-Ford hearings seeing a lot of uh, people on the more left side of the political spectrum refer to the Republican Party as the party of rape, Mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was a little crazy considering that uh, people from all sides of the political spectrum had been exposed by the Me Too movement. So in terms of uh, tribalism, yeah, I was just I was just concerned by this tendency to sort of excuse any and all behavior in people as long as they're in your camp. 
there was something similar that happened during the 2016 election when, mm-hmm. you know, Hillary was able to produce all these women who accused Donald Trump of groping them. And Donald well, well, Trump back, responded back. by... Ro- ro- no, roll back, yeah. roll back there. Sure, sure. Donald Trump was able to produce somebody who accused Donald Trump of groping women. That was himself. He he was caught on tape boasting about how he would grope women without their consent. That is true. That, that was pretty much a slam dunk. Um, exactly. But what concerned me there was the next step, which was um, his response to that was to bring out a, a sort of group of women who accused Bill Clinton of sexual misconduct. So it was very much this, you know, two coquet moment uh, mm-hmm. where I thought, you know, at this point, these uh, these women are being turned into are being turned into props to further a political agenda. And at that point, I really lost a lot of faith in the movement. Pause on that for a second, because you're correct that this has been used in a partisan way. But I think drawing an absolute equivalence between both sides there is not really correct because, and of course, there are people who are guilty of criminal behavior and perhaps sub-criminal, very crass behavior on both sides. But it is notably different that the Republican Party has had a slew of members who have made statements that are either justifying rape or belittling it to such a degree that indicates that there's a culture within that. I note that you write mostly for conservative outlets, and that's fair enough, but you would have to acknowledge that there is somewhat of a culture, particularly in the old white male section of the Republican Party, which might be most of it. And I'm thinking, for example, of um, Todd Aitken talking and trying to distinguish between a legitimate rape and some other sort of illegitimate rape and saying that if it's a legitimate rape, the female body has ways to shut that thing down. And it seemed like he had a very poor understanding of, you know, human reproduction and thought that uh, women could uh, spontaneously prevent themselves from getting pregnant from rape and that if they had gotten pregnant from a rape, then they weren't really raped or it wasn't really legitimate rape. Rick Santorum, who was, you know, quite a big deal for quite a long time in in the Republican Party, was a presidential candidate or candidate for the nomination um, said, and this is a direct quote, rape victims should make the best of a bad situation. Um, And another um, Indiana uh, Republican candidate for the US Senate, Richard uh, Murdoch, said, even when life begins in that horrible situation of rape, it is something that God intended to happen. Anybody listening to those would think that there is a partisan divide there. That's not unreasonable to think, is it? No, I don't believe it is. Uh, the legitimate rape comments were just absolutely uh, – they would be laughable in their ignorance if they weren't so uh, horrifying in kind of their moral content. But Actually, Yeah, you and I might laugh or be horrified. I'm not so sure that Todd Aitken was only talking for himself. It's I have a strong suspicion that, you know, Todd Aitken said it, but an awful lot more um, people like him thought it. That's fair. And look, there is a uh, there is an I, I'm uh, I do write for mostly sort of conservative publications, but I'm I'm certainly no uh, I'm certainly no uncritical apologist for the Republican Party. You know, mm-hmm. especially in the era of Trump, there is this um, sort of proudly politically incorrect reaction. 
mm-hmm. uh, which in some ways is a legitimate reaction against uh, some attempts on the left to uh, control speech and and dialogue. But at the same time, it brings in an element of, you know, crassness and, and often of misogyny that I do find horribly inappropriate. Um, mm-hmm. And that I do think, uh, you know, genuinely uh, causes our discourse on this issue to deteriorate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, I, uh, I wrote a piece uh, where I was uh, so I uh, studied literature uh, mm-hmm. for my for my undergraduate and master's degree. And I wrote a piece. I, I was rereading Shakespeare's play Much Ado About Nothing. And it really struck me that this uh, play was uh, really relevant to the Me Too moment. And what I took away from it was you have this the main character, Benedict, is part of this very kind of tight knit masculine group um, in which kind of these male male relationships are the most important thing. And women are sort of treated as almost sort of tokens or counters to be moved around within and uh, within that sort of relationship. Mm -hmm. And Benedict's arc throughout the play is him learning to uh, become mature enough to realize that there's more to life than just being a being a bro with your bros all the time and to eventually learn to stick up for a woman who Mm -hmm. one of his friends has uh, falsely accused of sex of of sexual misconduct and who is who he has publicly shamed in a way that's really damaging to her reputation and to her ability to live in this society uh-huh. um so he you know for the sake of uh for the sake of the woman he loves benedict ultimately challenges this man who's his best friend to a duel and that's one thing i think is missing from the sort of right wing uh, discourse on on sexual misconduct in the Me Too movement. Everyone's so concerned about being politically incorrect and not being and not you know knuckling under to the radical feminists. They've really forgotten kind of the the sort of better part of their ideology, which is kind of a an almost chivalric idea that you know it is men's duty in some way to ins- to treat the women around them with respect and to ensure that the other men around them do the same. Um, hold, hold, hold on there for a minute. First of all, I'll pass over. I know that Shakespeare contributed a lot of vocabulary to the English language. I don't know if bro was one of the words that he, that he, <laughs> that he contributed. Um, but I, um, I, I hear what you're saying. And you, you know, you might refer perhaps to um, Vice President Pence's policy of not being alone with any other women other than his wife. And that sounds incredibly, I don't know, maybe chivalric, maybe uh, decorous, but surely that is just as sexist as the aggressive attitudes towards women that you see in other areas on the right. I don't know necessarily. I, uh, I can't read Vice President Pence's mind. So on one hand, he... You know, he might in his head think of himself as someone who, due to failings in his own character, not the not due to the fact that women are, you know, all evil, seductive temptresses or anything, but perhaps due to some own internal weaknesses he's diagnosed in his own character, he feels as though that might be a temptation for him if he allowed himself to be alone with a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one way I've looked at it. On the other hand, I do see the validity in the in the argument that kind of by refusing to 
have meetings like that with women, he's in a way sort of shutting them out from kind of higher levels of decision making. Mm-hmm. So I can I'm sympathetic to that argument. I think it's a I think it's a choice you need to make if you do find yourself in a in a high position like that. I don't know. You mentioned you mentioned kind of decorous and, and chivalric behavior being potentially sexist. And it it uh, it certainly can be. It can cross that line into treating women as sort of second class human beings who uh, need to be protected and need to be sort of treated like children in a way. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I do think there was a uh, Gillette, the, the razor company, came out with an ad. Yes, uh, it's a very famous ad. Ago. Yes, yeah, yes, was... yes, which they got a huge amount of publicity for. I'm not sh- so sure how much sales they got out of, but it, it certainly exactly. uh, got people talking about them. Yeah. And look, there's a whole other conversation to have about whether I want major corporations uh, lecturing me on moral values. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this case, I think they really hit the nail on the head. And I wrote an, art- an article saying that in a conservative publication and got quite a bit of flack for it. Really? But, okay. Uh, ad, yeah, they, I'm sure you did, because most most on the right were incredibly critical of that. Yeah, I was accused of uh, I was accused of misandry and of being a, uh, a femi- uh, feminist, a male feminist cuck, I believe was one of the words used. Uh, but yeah, there's, a, there's uh, a great vocabulary there. But on that, then let me ask you one question on that. Do you think that there is anything in the almost backlash type reaction uh, from perhaps more conservative, perhaps a younger male conservative uh, movement to say that men are being victimized by this, that this is all evil feminists uh, plotting to take away uh, the rights of men and to take away their right to to, uh, the fair trial of an accused and every, you know, outlandish tweet from a 17-year-old feminist in the fresh in college with five followers on Twitter <laughs> is being sh- shown as the final proof that all men are going to be locked up tomorrow. That, that, that's an unreasonable re- reaction, isn't it? Or do you think that there's any, any reason in it? I will say there's a sense in which it's overblown. Uh, I do think that there's a tendency to over-exaggerate these things and to uh, you know complain about to, you know, to complain about the Me Too movement on one hand, I think is uh, something of a of a ridiculous thing to do. I, I think it's a very good thing that women who've been silent for so long about these things are speaking up in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I do think there is I, I am something of a believer in what's often referred to as kind of the crisis of masculinity in our society. Um You know, you look around, I look around, especially at men kind of my own age, I'm 25, Hmm. and a lot of them are very kind of lacking in direction. Uh, And the statistics would back this up. I don't have them in front of me uh, necessarily, but men are dropping out of college at very high rates at the moment and struggling in a number of other ways. Yeah, suicide rates are are spiking. Um, You know, men have, and I think it's, I'm trying to remember it. It might have been Malcolm X that talked about this, actually, you know, no, no, uh, no conservative himself. But mm-hmm. um, I believe it was Malcolm X who said that uh, when you uh, take away a man's ability to be the breadwinner for his family, it causes a significant crisis for him. And that's, you know, just in terms of changes in the economy, moving away from sort of an industrial economy, that's something that has been happening. So I do believe there's 
something of a crisis of masculinity and that that actually uh, feeds into these issues of kind of misogyny and sexual misconduct. I, what I said in my article is I don't think the solution is for men to stop being men. I think it's for men to be better men. I don't think the solution is to get rid of masculinity. It's to aspire to a, a higher form of masculinity. Grayson Kay, freelance writer for Washington Times, Reason.com, Town Hall, and many others. Thank you very much for talking to me. Oh, thank you as well. I had a really good time. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter. And thanks to everyone who's signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means I can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. If you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find there how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's June 3rd, I'll be talking to the writer Bruce Schneier about online privacy and cybersecurity. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. <laughs>